All right. So um, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine today or this week. That he said, I have to cut 2,500 words from my sermon by Sunday because there's this temptation to try and say it all when you're preaching. Uh, and he was really struggling with that. Fair warning, I have also struggled with that this week because I want to say it all, but uh, I can't. <laughs> um, so I was thinking this week about when I was uh, interviewing to become a pastor in New York. So maybe you don't know this, but uh, when, when pastors are interviewing, they, they have what's like called a candidating weekend. And uh, those things are terrible. Uh, <laughs> Because you, you, you go and everybody that shows up knows that you're like the one person that at the end of this weekend, they're going to vote on you, uh, whether or not you're going to be their next pastor. And so it feels a lot like American Idol, but with a Bible, and that's weird. Uh, in particular, like my least favorite thing when I went out to interview in New York was we had this potluck on Saturday, and uh, we, we get done eating, and then they put me up front, and everybody in the whole church is free to ask me any question they want on any topic for as long as they have questions. And I thought, that is terrible. Nobody should have to do that. Um, but then you go the next morning, Sunday morning, and you preach, and that's, that's like the are they going to send you to Hollywood or not moment, right? So, like, you really got to make sure that that sermon is good. So I was thinking, like, how do I make sure I'm preaching, like, this home run, slam dunk sermon? I thought, you know what? I'm going to preach one of these big gospel passages from the New Testament. Paul, you know, goes on these little, uh, you know, he sort of lets his mind wander, and he preaches these big, long, sweeping gospel texts, and, and it'll be great. I'll preach this gospel sermon. I'll get to the essence of the gospel. Then they'll know I'm, a, you know, I'm a real preacher and, and I mean they hired me so maybe it didn't go terrible but uh, so th I want to read for you this morning the the passage that I uh, chose to to preach that day so this is from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 Paul says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who's now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen, right? You, the only way to mess this up is just to not get out the way. Just read it a few times, make a few comments, and sit down. I love this passage because I feel like, you know, as I was getting ready for that sermon that day, I was like, this is the essence, this is the essence of the gospel. God loves you. God saved you in Christ. God has this wonderful plan for your life. All good, all true. And then I started pastoring. 
And I realized that what I thought was the essence of the gospel was actually just a narrow section of the gospel. And there is a big difference between the essence of something and a narrow view of something. What I mean to say is that line that I talked about at the beginning, what does your gospel have to say to those whose backs are against the wall? I, we lived in a, in a community in New York where there were a lot of people experiencing getting pushed out and experiencing a lot of the, the pain and brokenness of life. A lot of people whose backs were up against the wall. And, and you know what? It's true to say that God loves you and saves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. All of that is true. But I was pastoring a church that was full of folks that would say, hey God, you know that wonderful plan you have for my life? Could that start now, please? You know? And it was pastoring in this kind of context where I realized that, again, what I thought was the essence had become this sort of narrow picture of the gospel. Well, I was trying to describe the whole thing, and I was just describing this small thing. So do this with me. Stare at the seat back in front of you. If you're in the front row, just pick some spot on the floor. I want you to stare at the seat. Think about what you're looking at. Think about the different characteristics that you see. And now imagine that somebody is asking you to describe this whole room, but all you do is describe that seat back. Now that's in the room, so it's true. But we don't get a picture of the whole room by you describing the very thing that you're looking at right there. And there are times where, if I'm being honest, my experience in church has been somewhat like that. Where when we're trying to describe the gospel, what we describe is the thing, the narrow thing, seat back right in front of us, usually this part about the forgiveness of our sins. And we forget that maybe there's a whole room that we're not looking at. This is the point that I, there's, I this is kind of a rabbit trail, but this is what I started to learn as a pastor, that I'd been describing the seat back in front of me, and that I was living a kind of narrowed gospel and my understanding was incomplete. So I decided on my last Sunday at that church to stand up and say, you know what, I'm sorry. The first, service, first sermon I ever preached at this church, I said I preached the gospel. And being your pastor over the last four years taught me that I was preaching half the gospel. And so what I did was, I just said, you know what? That day I preached Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. All of it is true. All of it is important. All of it is beautiful. Today I want to preach Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. <laughs> the other half of the gospel. And that's what I want to do today. To try and figure out how in these few moments to preach both halves of the gospel. Uh, because uh, we've been talking about this idea that we are called to be a just church, a family of God's shalom. I am increasingly convinced that Ephesians 2 is maybe the most important passage for us to wrestle with if that's who we're going to be, if that's who we're called to be. So I want to move a little slower now and move through the rest of this passage as we think about what it means to be a family of God's shalom. So after all of that beautiful gospel stuff, Paul says, beginning in verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, 
Remember that at that time, that, that is before Jesus, at that time you were separate from Christ and you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, basic Bible study tip. You've probably heard this little cliche thing. Whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what's that therefore, therefore? That's, I'm, that sounds silly. It's a little cliche. But actually, if you're studying the Bible, do that. When you run across that word, say, why is that there? Because what it means is that everything that came before it is attached directly to everything that's coming right after it. It's a word that Paul is using to say, hey, don't disconnect these two ideas. These two ideas belong together. That's why it was a mistake for me to say that to preach 2 through 10 alone was as the gospel was narrow. Because Paul says, no, they belong together. So all that gospel stuff informs everything we're going to read now. Because it's all gospel. So I want us to think about this. That God is doing something in the world because of the work of Jesus. And therefore, this is now also true. So he's talking to these Gentiles. Gentiles means everybody that's not Jewish. Okay? You may know this, but by way of review, before Jesus, the only people who were included in the people of God were ethnically Jewish. Okay? There was an ethnic category, being Jewish. You had to be ethnically Jewish to be part of the people of God, which meant you then had cultural things that you abided by. You had religious practices that were different than, than the Gentiles. Now, I'm looking around this room, and I'm guessing 90 to 95% of this room, we are all Gentiles. We're not ethnically Jewish. Which means that everything Paul says here applies directly to us. Before Jesus, we would not have been included. Before Jesus, we would have been separate from the people of God. Before Jesus, we would have been pushed to the margins and excluded. We would have been given the label foreigner to the promises of God. There is a deep schism between Jew and Gentile, and you have to understand that. That all of those things, the ethnic distinctions, which we would maybe today also include race, but that wasn't really a concept then. Ethnic distinctions, religious distinctions, cultural distinctions, all of these different types of things had created this big schism between these two groups. That's why when it says, at one time there was a group of people who called you the uncircumcised, that was a label, that was like name-calling that Jewish folks would look at Gentiles and call them the uncircumcision, those people over there. But that is not what's happening anymore. Because of what Jesus is doing, something new is happening. Before Jesus, Gentiles could only be on the outside looking in, dealing with these labels of being excluded and separated, and they live in this sort of permanent foreigner status. They are hopeless people given labels that push them out. The, the, he says here, you who were once far away, the, the pushed out people. I want you to think about who are the pushed out people in our world today? Because that's what it would have been like to be us 2,000 years ago. Who are the pushed out people in our world today? The ones who are far away, who live with labels that others have put on them to say you're less than. I want you to hold those folks in your mind as we keep going through today. 
Because even though that's true, and it's true in our world now, that there are people who are labeled and pushed out, the good news is, and that's what gospel means, by the way, the good news is that the work of Jesus includes a mending of that exclusion. Some people are like, how could God allow it to be that they would have this like Jewish-only thing? Well, God is the one doing the work to bring the work people back together. These Gentiles, separated, excluded, foreigner-type people are now in Christ being brought back in. Paul makes it really clear. By the blood of Christ, these Gentiles who were far are being brought back in. You know, we sing a lot of songs about the blood of Jesus, don't we? And almost all those songs about the blood of Jesus deal with my sins being forgiven. We don't have too many songs about the blood of Jesus bringing outsider excluded folks into the family of God. If anybody's a songwriter, write a few. We'll start singing them here. The blood of Jesus is bringing Gentiles into the family of God because the very thing they were meant to be is shalom community with God from the very beginning. Now Jesus is making it so. I want to keep reading here. In verse 14, we're picking it up again. Paul says, for he, that's Jesus, Jesus himself is our peace. Do you remember what I said? When you see the word peace in the Bible, what word should you be thinking of? Shalom. Jesus is our shalom. Jesus is our wholeness. Jesus is our nothing missing, nothing broken. Jesus is that one, and Jesus has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier between them, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And this is a big sentence. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. One new humanity out of the two. Thus making what? Shalom. Jesus is shalom, and Jesus is making shalom by bringing groups that are divided by hostility and hate one family, a new humanity family. I'm getting into the preaching part. I gotta... And then verse 16, and in one body that is himself, in himself to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You see what's happening here? Shalom is not just being mended between the Gentiles and God. Paul's not saying, look, because of Jesus, you also can have your sins forgiven. He is saying that, but it's not just that. That's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. He's saying also the big division between us that's been codified and and, and systematized over generations, that divide is being healed now. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our shalom. He is the one mending everything that's broken and everything that has gone missing. Shalom is, well, I love this idea. Paul is emphasizing this. Uh, you're being brought back in to relationship. The, the dividing walls of hostility are coming apart and there's this new people being formed. Because remember we talked about how shalom is always meant to be experienced in community. Because God as Shalom is Father, Son, and Spirit. And God creates us to experience that community of Shalom with God. But that gets broken down. That's what sin does. Is it breaks down our ability to experience that kind of community in the world. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus on the cross is making it possible for us to experience that community with one another again. 
across all of the lines of hostility. So this idea, let's go back one, Alex, looking there at verse 15 and, 14 and 15. This idea that Jesus is our peace, he's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. They would have understood there was a very clear mental image that they would have had here. Because in the temple at this time, if you went into the temple, uh, there were Gentiles that were, that were wanting to convert to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there was a place that they were allowed to go in the temple, the court of the Gentiles. And it was quite literally walled off from the rest of the temple. So if you were a Gentile, you walked in and you knew that you had a place over here that you were allowed to go. Separate, but still equal access to God. And what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, that wall is being divided, destroyed, torn down. Because we all now have access. We all now have access. I made a little joke there, but of course we have history in our own country that would allow us to understand what it is that's happening here. This idea of, like, there's a place where certain folks are allowed to be and not, that's an American story too. Like, that's the Jim Crow, separate but equal kind of thing, where there were separate spaces and there were places, the walls that we were putting up were indications of who could be where and who was allowed to be in community with whom. And I love this phrase in verse 15, that Jesus' purpose was to create one people, one humanity. The world divides it all up, but now there is this one humanity. There is a kind of a double move happening here. There's two things happening in this passage, that in bringing us to God, Jesus is bringing us into a family of faith where the things that create walls of hostility are being torn down in favor of a new family. But at the same time, in healing the divisions between people and people groups, Jesus is shaping us into the kind of community that's fit for relationship with God. God. God exists in relational wholeness all the time. There's nothing missing and nothing and broken. So if we exist in relational brokenness, then we're not going to fit real well in relationship with God. But what Jesus is doing is making us the kind of people who can be in relationship with God. We'll keep reading. In verse 17 and 18, Paul says that Jesus came and he preached what? Shalom. He came and preached shalom to the people who were far away. And he came and he preached shalom to the people who are near. Because through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There's that Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, preaching a message of shalom, bringing us all together into that community. There are no faraway folks and near folks in the kingdom of God. There are no pushed out to the side and people at the center in the kingdom of God, not the way that God designs it. No us in them, just we. We'll keep reading verse 19. Consequently, now that's another one of those words. That's, I don't have a funny, stupid thing to say about that. There's no therefore, therefore here. Just consequently, when you see that word consequently, you should think that what Paul's trying to say or the Bible writer's trying to say is all that to say, summing up, the point of all of this, what Paul is saying is the point of all of this then is that you are no longer foreigners and strangers. 
You are citizens with God's people and members of his household. What does it mean to be a member of a household? You're part of the family. The people who were far away and excluded and separated and labeled, they have been brought in and said, pull up a chair, your family. Those folks that you were thinking of earlier, can we pull them back out and hold them in our hearts again? In a world of labels and margins, the people of God is a place where those things are torn down in favor of a family where everyone is invited to participate in a community that's becoming more whole and relationship with a God whose greatest desire is that we would taste God's shalom together. The good news of Jesus includes this sort of radically surprising reality that division and hate between people groups is being overcome in Jesus, which means that the people of Jesus is like ground zero for where that work happens. When we describe the gospel as this, oh, the gospel is just this thing between me and God, or just this thing between you and God, we miss out on all this other piece of the gospel. My mom is a gift giver by trade. <laughs> and uh, when we lived in New York, she was, uh, was going to ship out our Christmas presents and uh, th- she'd never done this before, but she thought, I'll save on shipping by wrapping all the presents and then putting them in a big box for each of us, which I, I like getting presents by, tr- by trade. Um, and then she wrapped that big box and then she shipped it out before she came to visit for Christmas. So she came to visit and it's Christmas and we've got this, I've got this big box sitting on my lap. And uh, I open it up and there's all these gifts inside, right? It's like, oh, here's this gift card for coffee. This is great. Uh, you know, here's some, here's some, uh, some uh, barbecue stuff because I'm, I'm a big fan of barbecue. Awesome. Here's these socks. Like, I don't, I'm not excited, but these are useful. There's all of these gifts inside the one big box. How weird it would be if I open that box up and I'm like, oh, cool, a gift card. Thanks. And my mom's like, there's more in there. And I'm like, no, there's not. There's just this one thing. I will not look in the box. Because if I look in the box, mom, I'll be less grateful for this thing, the here that I'm holding in my hand. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Now, so many of us are given this big gift of the gospel. God gives each of us this big gift of the gospel. And you know what? We all probably, most of us, probably reach in and we pull out this, like, my sins are forgiven piece of the gift. This is awesome. And God's like, you know what? There's more in the box. No, there's not, God. There's only this. This is the fullness of the gospel. This is the... And God's like, what are you talking about? There's way more in the box. But God, if I look in the box, I might be less thankful for the personal salvation I've been given. That's just as ludicrous. That's not to cheapen this gift to say that there's more in the box. This is that narrow view of the gospel that I had like fallen in thinking this is the essence of it. Well, yeah, this is so important. There's more in the box. Being... It's like, this is the thing, like, the gospel is God giving love to us. To take a narrow piece of it is to 
is to tell God, we don't want all the love you have to give. We want this piece of the love that you have to give. On the flip side, when we recognize, even for the first time, guess what? There's more in the box. I can't believe it. There's more in the box. It should drive us to want to like jump into the box just to see what's there. Because this first thing that we experienced was so great. Imagine what else is there. Well, what else is there is this community of wholeness and shalom where together the things that divide and create hatred in the world can be healed and mended in a community that puts that on display for the world. That's still in the box. So I want us to think about that. What it means to be a family of God's shalom. What would it look like to wrestle those things out? So I have three thoughts that I went way over first service. We're doing real good here. <laughs> Three thoughts. I don't want us to confuse difference with division. Don't confuse difference with division. Um, there's lots of differences between people. There's gender difference, there's racial difference, there's ethnic difference, cultural difference, socioeconomic difference. There's all kinds of difference between people. But that doesn't have to mean division. In the world, difference is the line where we build the walls of hostility. In the, in the world, division is where our difference is where we create divides and we allow hatred to foster. But in the church, difference is something totally different than that. I didn't think that sentence through. <laughs> Difference doesn't have to be the place where div division grows. Difference can be the place where we begin to celebrate the fact that God is putting together a new humanity family across lines of difference. There are lots of churches that try really hard to be the same. They protect sameness at all costs. They work to create a community where it's all one type of person, but that's not the church, because the church, and Paul says this a million other times in the New Testament, the church is the place where people come together across lines of difference to learn how to be a new kind of family. And it is the fact that God is doing that in our community that enacts the parable. That's how we live out the gospel. It's how we demonstrate to the world that there is a new thing happening in Jesus. It becomes a place for celebration. We also need difference. So if we're staring at our seat backs and you describe the back of your chair, you haven't described much of what's in this room at all. But if everybody describes the back of their chair, then we've described most of the room, haven't we? Well, the same thing is true in the church. Same thing is true in the gospel. That where I'm sitting in the world, who I am and the things that make up who I am, I have a valuable contribution. But I'm just describing one part of it. One part of the gospel. One part of uh, life in God's kingdom. We need each other across all of our differences to be able to describe who we are and what we see from where we are. Because that's how we learn what the whole room looks like. 
So we don't want to confuse difference with division. We want difference to be the fodder for celebration of what God is doing. And along those lines, then the second thing that I'll say is that we need to be able to uncover othering. Othering is a sort of technical term. But basically, what it means is that the ways in which we create us versus thems. The verses, that's othering. What are the things that happen that push people out? What are the things that happen when we label people? You know, in this passage, it was talking about people call you the, circum- the uncircumcised. We label people to demean them. That happens in our world. Uh, there are all kinds of forces that create division and hostility. We need to be able to see that and recognize it. You know, in our neighborhood in Chicago, before we moved here, uh, there were uh, this kind of string of racially motivated beatings in our neighborhood. They were ganging up on folks uh, from, with Arabic descent, and they were beating them up. And so there were some others, maybe you've seen these signs around. They, they, they created this sign they wanted to put up that said, hate has no home here. Anybody seen those signs? Hate has no home here? Yeah, that started in, in, in the neighborhood just next to where we live. Uh, and there was this idea here that we're not going to tolerate like these sort of racially motivated beatings in our community. We don't want to tolerate that. Well, okay, so a sign, I don't know what the sign ultimately accomplishes besides being a gesture of goodwill, but that's the dynamic that I'm talking about. We can recognize those things. We just, we just turn on TV. We see it in the news. We see it all over the place. There's all kinds of ways that people create divides, but there are subtle ways to do it too. And most of the time, we, it's harder to recognize. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we talked last week about that uh, food ministry that I was a part of in a, in a previous situation and how difficult it is to, uh, to know if you're being effective and all this kind of stuff. So anyways, back to that same food ministry. Uh, we had made the decision to say that when people come through the food ministry, we wanted to call them guests. And the point was sometimes people refer to folks coming through a place that offers food like a client where they just count them. And we decided that wasn't good, that we wanted a relational term. So we came up with this idea of guest. So I like that. But unbelievably, sort of amazingly, people who came through that food ministry also became part of our church. Isn't that great? Like, that's what you want. People became part of our church. Now, for the pastor, this was difficult for me as a pastor because uh, we would tell stories about the cool things that were happening in the food ministry uh, on, at church on Sundays. Like, look at all this stuff God's doing with, with the guests that come through the food pantry. And then one day I realized that the person sitting, you know, next to me or just right over there, that person, I just called them a guest in the church that they call home. That felt like a punch in the gut, if I'm being honest. When I started to think about what would it feel like to be called a guest in a church that you call home? And I didn't mean to do it. But what I had done was allowed like this little barrier to exist between this person and me because she needed food and I didn't. That wall is being torn down in Jesus. We need to lean into that. We need to be able to recognize when that happens and how do we create the kind of community that can overcome those kinds of things. And that's why we need the practice of radical hospitality. Because the, the way that we counter othering is through radical hospitality. So fair warning, this is, I get really nerdy on this topic. I get real nerdy. We're just going to have to deal with it. So uh, the Greek word, 
xenos. When you, encounter, when you read your New Testament and you see the word stranger or you see the word guest, it's that Greek word xenos. It's, it's always the same word. But that's an interesting little nugget to me because those don't really mean the same things in, in English. Stranger and guest, those aren't the same things. But I think, actually, it's important. It's important because I think it signals God's intention. He gave us that word because there's something about the movement from stranger to guest that God wants from us. He wants when we encounter the stranger, the person on the outside, to see that person as someone who can become a guest in our lives and then hopefully, ultimately, a sister or a brother. That there's this movement from stranger to guest. But that's not the thing we think of. We don't, when we see strangers on the street, we don't think, that's somebody who should be a guest in my house. That's somebody who should be a guest in my life. I could become friends with that person. We don't think that. When we see a stranger on the street, we're much more likely to think, I should be afraid of that person. And it's fear, it's fear that interrupts that movement from stranger to guest. That movement from stranger to guest gets severed because fear or phobia gets injected. So when you combine xenos and phobia, you get xenophobia. That's where that word comes from. Xenophobia is fear that cuts a line between a stranger being somebody that I could see as a guest. People who are different than me, I'm afraid of. That's xenophobia. So I know that all of the ways that I might push people away from me, or we as a community, the ways that we might push people away, almost always that's due to some kind of fear. So we need something that will drive that fear out. Just so happens there's a Bible verse that tells us the one thing that drives out fear. Anybody know it? Love. John says in 1 John 4 that perfect love drives out fear. The antidote to phobia is philea. Philea, right? Philadelphia means city of brotherly love. That's where that phrase comes from. We don't need phobia. We need philea. We don't need xenophobia. We need xenophilia. Xenophilia is the word the Bible says hospitality. That's the word for hospitality. Xenophilia is love for the stranger. So it's not just being nice and welcoming, although it is being nice and welcoming, but radical hospitality is saying that when I encounter the stranger, when I encounter the person on the outside, that the call of Jesus is to create space in my life for that stranger to become a guest in my life, ultimately someday a friend, sister, or brother. Radical hospitality is saying no to fear, And saying yes to creating a space of welcome in our lives, in our communities, for people to become guests (coughs) and sisters and brothers. (coughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish that sentence. (coughs) That movement. We've been talking all along about how shalom is relational, right? Shalom is about creating a family of God's shalom. Well, in the world, that is that movement from stranger to guest to family. I love this word, kinship. Kinship is a word that's basically the state of being family. It describes a community 
that is experiencing family. That's what the word kinship, I think, is trying to say. So I'm going to leave you with this quote. This is why one of my spiritual heroes, Father Greg Boyle, he says this, I suspect if kinship was our goal, or I'll say, I suspect if family was our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice. We would, in fact, be celebrating it.